Welcome to episode 160 of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. This show was recorded on Monday, May the 15th, 2017. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA, where you'll always find a great selection of products at amazing prices with unparalleled customer service. For more information, just go to jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. And now for a limited time, new customers to Jensen USA who are referred by the spokesman get 10% off one item. Simply enter the spokesman, no spaces, at checkout. Hey everybody, it's David from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast at thefredcast.com. I'm the host and producer of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. For show notes, links, and other information, simply go to our website at the-spokesman.com. And now, here are the spokesmen. Hi there, I'm Carlton Reed of bikebiz.com. Today's episode of The Spokesman is an interview with Donnie Perry, of Specialized. Donnie is the company's US-based senior manager for retail development. I was with him at the opening of the Specialized pop-up store in Dusseldorf last week. We talked for 45 minutes on the future of bicycle retail. Please be aware that we were in a retail store being prepared for opening, so there are a few scrapes and buzzes in the audio here and there. Donnie, tell me what's on your business card. So I, I think you're I think you're looking more for my title than my phone number. Yeah. Um, my title at Specialized is Senior Manager of Retail Development, and what that means is uh, that I work with any kind of um, transformation project or uh, kind of future state projects of retail. So anything where we want to try to make something different or operate in a different way or um, explore and study and get insights about uh, rider journey or retail challenges. I'm, I'm addressing that whole umbrella of things. Are you going to retailers as well and giving them input into their stores? So specialized dealers, can they come to, to Donnie and say, what should I do here? Or is this for specialized only? Um, so the at Specialized we have we have a we have a pretty bolstered education program. So Specialized Bicycle Components University or SBCU, and retailers for a long time have been coming to us to get uh, a sense of best practices or visionary ideas or statements and so on. So any of the work I do uh, will help kind of filter down into the SPCU program where they can come in and grab nuggets and best practices as we find them. So tell us about your book. My book. So in lean 2014, I self-published a book called Leading Out Retail. And it is, uh, the subtitle was, a, if I can remember the subtitle, the subtitle was a creative, a creative look at bicycle retail and what all retailers can learn from it. I was really gambling on the search term around retail. So I figured if I put the word retail three times in the book, I would get, uh, get some searches. And essentially it was just a uh, compilation of some best practices that I've had over my career in retail and on the industry side, working with retailers. And uh, yeah, I just wrote it down, published it, put it up there. I really expected no one to buy it except my mom. 
and a few people bought it. So uh, and they went home. I wish I would have done more editing than I did on the book, but that's fine. So you're a bike guy. You're not a retail guy as such. You've come through the, the mom and pop stores in where you're from. In fact, you better tell us where you're from. You're not from Morgan Hill, California. <laughs> I'm not from Morgan Hill, California. Born and raised in Des Moines, Iowa. I've always been a cyclist first. Um, I didn't own a car until I was 38. I uh, worked as a bike messenger. I raced on the road. I raced on the track. And that naturally led to, in like my teens and early 20s, kind of taking on all the, all the jobs at bike shops. And so for um, most if not all of my 20s, I worked in bike shops and uh, both in Chicago and Des Moines, just kind of taking things on. But on the side, I always had this really messed up passion for business books and just just trying to consume as much as I could and learning what's going on in different industries and how different economies of working are working. And then trying to figure out how can I apply that to retail. And then that quickly, I made, I made the jump from a bike shop to working specialized in... That's quite a big jump. How did you make that jump? Um, it was, it was, I uh, went out to SPCU as, as a retailer to um, kind of go through the course and I, I got up there and I was like, wow, you know, this is pretty cool, pretty cool gig, I think, I, and I just applied for it. You know, scratched, clawed, and begged my way into the company a bit. The, it's interesting because at, at the bike retail, there's such, for a lot of people in, in our industry, um, the bike shop can be, it's a pretty low ceiling of advancement. You know, for, for a lot of people working there, they're passionate about it, but their growth, it's hard, it's hard to draw that map. So a lot of people have to make that jump either from the bike shop to some industry, to the industry side, or from the bike shop even completely out of the industry. And uh, I was one of those people who made the jump from, to the industry side. But I, I think about all my colleagues who are working in retail out there, right? All my friends who are working in retail, and it's, like they're looking up that, that org chart, and they're like, okay, there's the owner, below the owner is the sales manager, and then there's me, and the only way that advancement's gonna happen is if one of those two people die, <laughs> and then maybe I can move up a bit, but yeah, it's, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty low ceiling. So yeah, I made the jump I think a lot of people make. And what were you doing when you originally joined Specialized? Were you doing roughly what you're doing now? Or have you also made a personal career advancement via Specialized? I've, I've had a little, while I've been in the cycling industry, my, my career's been a little bit squiggly. Um, it's been a moving line. When I started at Specialized, I started as a uh, instructor in SBCU teaching body geometry fit, and I did that for a couple of years. And then I moved out of body geometry fit, and I wanted to move more into the um, education of business. Um, understanding operations, understanding HR, financial management, uh, sales management, and so on. So we started developing some courses around that, and I jumped on that side. And then that quickly evolved into my, the, uh, the work I have now, which is retail development and trying to help the company understand where to go in terms of retail with its retailers or through any other means. So the noises, if, if the microphone's picking up any of those noises in the background, which is absolutely totally fine because you're doing something today and not, you're not, we're not in a studio doing this in pristine uh, conditions, because we are in Dusseldorf and uh, you've invited me here to, to be part of the pop-up store, the specialised first pop-up store in Dusseldorf because of the Tour de France coming in July and because of the, the, the Vardo, the electric bike launch. I'd like to get onto that in a moment, 
But before we go into why we're here in Dusseldorf, just the, the fact we've been walking around together, we've been going to restaurants, and some of them you, you've kind of picked out almost because they had what I'm going to talk about here, is you're looking at design features. So you're looking into retail spaces, and you're thinking, that's interesting. You're going into a restaurant, and you're thinking, look at the way they put those light tracks. So you've become, via your specialised career progression, you become a design geek, a retail design geek. And so you, you, you've attuned yourself to be looking out for these things. Is that, would that be a fair? That's a totally fair statement. I, I have a really difficult time walking into any establishment and not trying to pick out what they do best. I think that any, any business, whether it's a restaurant, a Starbucks, or a, you know, a candle shop, I don't know, every business out there does one thing really, really great. And they might be the best in the world at doing that one thing, but right underneath that, I don't think any of them know they're good at it. Uh, you know, I can, I can transfer that to like, to like the, the bike industry. Every bike shop does one thing better than any other bike shop. For some bike shops, it'll be financial management, uh, or some bike shops, it'll be how they treat their customers. Other bike shops, it might be like how they store cables and housing. Uh, but a lot of the times, they don't know what they do great because they don't necessarily have the time to go around and see as many bike shops or other, or, uh, other retail establishments or other businesses and go in with that mindset of like, let's try to solve their problem and figure out what they're doing great so that you can kind of compile the best practices. You're absolutely right. I'm a design geek. I'm an operational geek. I'm a retail geek. And uh, my fiance, uh, luckily she's, a, she's almost just like me in that sense. So we can go into a place and we can spend the entire time where in that establishment just kind of dissecting and wondering and asking and pushing out. In fact, it's, it's to the point where I, I have no problems asking. I, I, uh, I went into, I'm digressing here, so it stopped me at any point, but I went, um, went with my fiance makeup shopping and the entire conversation was talking about traditional department store makeup versus Sephora, which is like really booming and kind of eclipsing the world in makeup sales. And she's, she's walking me through this and teaching me about every little bit. But the entire time I'm, I'm taking these lessons and I'm thinking, well, how can I take that best practice or that idea and apply it in, my, in this industry? And how can, I, how can I adapt it in some way? That's, that is my life. You hit the nail on the head. So this industry, which you just talked about there, is, I mean, Specialized is a sexy company, okay? Specialized is known for, for some pretty sexy bikes. The technologies we've been going through on um, the, the Vado range, all high-tech, very sexy. Um, and yet the industry is actually, if we look beneath that shiny veneer, it's a cottage industry, it's a relatively small industry, and it's, for want of a better phrase here, it's an old-fashioned industry. It's an industry that is almost it shouldn't be here, like the, the butchers, the bakers, uh, the candlestick makers are no longer here. Bike shops are still here. The industry servicing those bike shops is still here. Where do you see the future going for the industry, for the specialised of this world, the treks of this world, those kind of the, the, the big three or four, and retail and how those two often those, they're in conflict a lot of the time. So where do, we, where do you see the future, the Amazon-style future? 
Um, it's, it's a great question. And to your point and kind of what you hit on there, it's, it's a challenging question because um, you're right. This is, this is, I don't, it's not the last, but it's got to be close to one of the last industries that kind of operates on this large vendor working with a small independent retailer who's catering to a very niche community of loyal fans. Um, where a lot of other industries, that's, 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 it's on the same plane now. It's usually the people who make the thing sell into the people who want the thing, and there's no, there's no middleman or middlewoman in there. Um, so I often ask myself, why is that? And is it, is it because there's, it's not because there's a lack of money, there's plenty of money to be made. Otherwise, the industries would have collapsed on themselves. Um, and I, I come back to it and I think there's something going on at the consumer level that when they go to purchase a bike, it is a purchase that they're passionate about. It's a purchase that they're excited about. It's a purchase that they, they want to kind of dig in and learn about. And that step is something that almost all the other major forms or types of retail, uh, they haven't solved it. They, they haven't been able to solve that with with a data solution or a, um, or, a, or a delivery solution of some kind. They haven't been able to figure out how do I um, scale and monetize this human relationship that's happening at this level. They haven't, been, they haven't got there, which is why in our industry right now, we still have a lot of independent retailers who are working, they're thriving, their businesses are growing, they're, they're doing well. Um, and I think it just comes down to they're the ones holding the cards because the cards are all about the relationship. Specialized was founded 74, 75. 1974. Okay, all right, first time, cool. Um, a lot of the companies that we know and love, the, the Trex, the Giants, Merida, they were also founded roughly the same time. An awful lot of the bike shops who, apart from one or two really famous ones, which have been around you know, since the 1940s, the great majority of bike shops now were roughly also founded in that kind of bike boom era. The owners of these companies, the owners of these bike shops are the baby boomers. They are wanting to retire now, they're wanting to, to move on. Could that just overnight, when they either retire or clearly nobody's immortal when they, when they die, a whole strand of the industry will, will just naturally die away. Do we yet see the new, the baby boomers of today, the millennial, are they creating the bike shops of the future or are we still relying on that old model but we're just new owners of that old model? You're totally right. Um, the, the boom of cycling in the 70s was so big that it sparked all those brands and it sparked all those those, uh, those first wave of big retailers, um, who are now big, they were small back then, but who are now, who are now pretty large and successful. And, and yeah, they're reaching to a point to where it's like, they're, they're making those big questions. What's, what's my legacy plan? What's the legacy plan of this business? What's the legacy plan of this brand? I can't speak for any of them, like, cause I think their decisions are all over the map, but so I don't wanna, I don't wanna call out any one thing. But uh, let's just address your point. Do some of them just fade away and kind of leave a vacuum? That, will, that might happen. That might happen, but I believe that that void will get filled in some way. 
Um, now it can get filled with a with an industry that's selling direct to the writer. It can get filled with another independent that's more of a rising sun that just comes in and just kind of takes over and rebuilds the relationship with the community. Um, it can go a lot of different ways, but no matter which way it goes, the good thing is it's positive for cycling and it's positive for the riders who want to be in the sport. One of the models that you, you're almost complete, you could almost say, it fits that, that, that model of the direct consumer model is Canyon. So Canyon is coming into, into the US and be very successful in Europe. And they are cutting out the middle person, the, the bike shop. And they're also a, a highly tech company. So they're not a, it's not a commodity. Canyon bike is not a commodity bike. It's still a high tech bike, but a lower price with a good backstory. It's almost like a specialized, but without the retailers. So can the entry of Canyon, is that gonna mix things up or are they gonna find it pretty tough? I don't, I don't, I don't want to address Canyon strategy. I think what I'll do is I'll, I'll let me draw a hypothetical of, a th of where I believe you're going with this. Let's, let's take the independent retailer who, who has got arguably the most to lose in this scenario. Let's paint, a, let's paint the worst case possible future for that independent retailer. Let's say that the brands, uh, Specialized Canyon, whoever, let's say we all reach an absolute stalemate on product innovation and design. All bikes become exactly the same and we can't improve on them in any way. Right? Once that future happens, right, in this, in this uh, hypothetical dystopia <laughs> that I've created, once that happens, it's a price war. It's an immediate price war and they just start cutting, cutting each other down to try to sell their product. At which point, if the independent retailer is in that dystopian world, how are they going to thrive? And what I often tell retailers is, you know, I'm a big fan of the hope for the best but prepare for the worst. And preparing for the worst means control your revenue. Control your revenue. The, the era of, um, you know, you got a manufacturer who makes a product, I get, I get to a certain margin on my product and I can sell it out. It's quickly getting disrupted in every possible channel. So my advice to any independent retailer who's looking forward and going, what the hell do I do? Is I say, figure out where your revenue comes from, figure out the revenue streams that you control, and bolster them, build them up. Now, right now, that's probably service, bike fitting, maybe a little bit of consulting. Great, how can you build those out? How can you do more of it? How can you, where can you increase the price? Where can you increase the margin? Where can you increase, um, or rather, where can you decrease the operational expense of that thing? People will always come looking for a bike. So, in this dystopian world where bikes don't have margin, they can take those bikes and they can say, hey, this is my hook to get you inside the store where I will sell you my suite of services that I control the revenue, I control the naming, I control the branding of that. Now, until we reach that dystopia however many years out, in the meantime, partner with brands who are partnering back with you and that you can make a margin on. So, yeah, 
That's that's my that's my answer to that. Without I don't want to address what Canyon's doing or say how our brand plans to respond because it, it doesn't matter. It's their businesses and they're they're going to be jockeying for place forever. But how those independent retailers react in the middle of that turf war, that's control your own revenue stream as much as you possibly can. You talk about dystopia there, as though that's far off in the future. Well, for many bike shops, they're in the middle of that dystopia right now. And the dystopia, the names that are connected to that dystopia for them, and not just the canyons of this world, it's on the retail side, it's, it's, I don't know how much it affects us in the US, but Chain Reaction and Wiggle have gone global and they're, they're commoditizing the retail world. So if somebody, a bike person, wants to buy you know, tubes, tires, bikes, Mm-hmm. then they, they will turn to those commodities because they can get them cheaper than they can probably even get them tr- in, in their own trade. So if there's that dystopian world, you think that's scary enough for a bike shop. But then you have Amazon Home Service and you've got things that we hitherto thought, well, we're just looking at endemics. We're looking at major players that have grown up as bike shops. So Chain Reaction and Wiggle, these were bike shops first, and they just first to scale, first to go big on the internet, etc. But then you've got a, you turn to the other side and you've got this other, a much, much bigger threat, which is Amazon. So just tell us, because we were talking about this before, about the, the Amazon home service thing. What, what exactly is happening in that particular space? That, that would impact potentially on the servicing parts you were talking about that's where you should you should focus your your um, efforts if there's actually a, a threat coming in even in that space before I before I address the Amazon home services piece let me come back and say that owning your revenue right now it is looking at bike repair and bike fitting and so on but that's not the only place it can be coming from there's a lot of places that you can be in the sport and you can try to figure out some way to monetize that. Um, for example, I look, I look at retail and I look at uh, the consumers when they come into to the shop and they purchase a product, those consumers quickly bump into a whole series of tests. That, the second they get out of the door, the first test they might get into is clipping into their bike without falling down. And I, I say, well, how many retailers are out there with that rider supporting them on that first ride you know, helping them clip in and so they don't have that fear. Um, the next test they have is riding in traffic. The next test they have is feeling confident about themselves while wearing skin-tight clothes. The next, they bump to test after test after test. And I think a lot of, a lot of businesses say, once the product's sold, I've done my job. And that's not necessarily where the consumer finds value anymore. That's where they might find value in terms of a price discount or something like that. But where they find value is in how do you help them solve those tests and make that life easier for them. So in terms of that dystopia, it's not always just about bolstering what you have, but looking at anything you can possibly do and investing and bolster that. I'll go back to the Amazon question you asked. So Amazon's got um, Amazon Home Services, and it is a brilliant little program that they have. So you can go to Amazon and if you purchase just about anything that requires some type of uh, assembly or build out in your home, then- Expertise that you need to fit your television or something. Exactly. Then you can, for 
click a button and a small little fee, you can have, tap Amazon Home Services and then an expert uh, who's essentially working with a, within a gig economy can come to your home and then do that. So right now, you can go to Amazon. They, there's a number of bikes available for, for sale on Amazon. You can purchase a bike for whatever amount. And then for 69 more dollars, you tap that button, and then someone comes to your home and can assemble that bike for you. That, uh, now, who is that person assembling the bike? And like what certifications have they been through? And like what expertise do they have? It doesn't really matter. Sorry, I bumped the microphone. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter what expertise they have because the, the we'll call it an ecosystem within Amazon controls who gets rewarded. So the consumer review will instantly push the best people to the top and they're the ones who are gonna keep getting fed more and more deals. So it might be um, a company that's got a lot of trucks out there who have like these mobile bike shops who are fulfilling the Amazon uh, services. It might be some guy in a Ford Fiesta who's got a four and five millimeter Allen wrench, pulls up and sets up your bike. Or it could be a bike shop. Or it could be a bike shop. Yeah, it could be It could be a bike shop. It could be the mechanic in the bike shop who's looking for some extra cash on the side. It could be all these things. Um, and that's a really interesting uh, thing that Amazon has done in terms of like trying to solve that problem where it's, hey, we, we, we want to win on the price, we want to win on the commodity game, but we also want to win on the connection game and the convenience game to bring that bike to fruition or bring that bike to, uh, to, uh, to the consumer in an in a easy, simple way. As a retail design geek, you want to make stores nice you want to make them welcoming, you want to make them places where people want to part with their, their cash, so that may be part of being a community, you, you, you're more likely to want to give that particular bike shop your cash. However, the Amazon home services future is there ain't no bike shops. You're getting everything brought to your, your house where you're already very comfortable, you've got your couch there already, you've got your coffee making machine there already, and everything is brought to you. Is this not just something that spells the end of, of community bike shops. Not at all, because what we're forgetting is while Amazon is this behemoth, more or less it's catalog shopping. And it's, there's nothing special or experiential about how you chose the product. Um, I'll give you an example of a, of a retailer out there who's doing really well against an Amazon catalog shopping, and that's the company Perch. P-I-R-C-H, and what Perch sells is um, stoves and kitchen appliances and bathroom appliances. But the difference between Perch and any other store that sells those things is that all of their appliances are hooked up. So if you wanted to go in there and cook something or have someone cook something for you, every stove fires up and you can cook something there. If you wanted to go in and if you bring your bathing suit and you wanted to test out every single shower, you could do that there. Uh, so they've made this truly engaging retail environment that hits every possible sense. And that is something that consumers are gravitating towards and going to a physical space, driving down, getting out of their house and skipping the website. They can buy probably all of those things online and have them hooked up, but they, they 
the catalog shopping over here that's going to define my ultimate experience that I'm going to have with this product for the next three, five, ten years, right, isn't enough of an experience yet that someone like Perch doesn't thrive. So there's still a place for physical retail. There's still a place to go in and create that experience. So now we switch that to the bicycle industry and say, okay, when someone comes in, how do they demo? How do they try out the product? Are there products they're not allowed to try out because you know we gotta make sure the floor model's pristine? Or hey, they can only try out these products over here? Or are you taking the approach that every bike is a demo bike and give everybody the access to it? Are you taking that, like try everything on, experience everything and get some real engagement going around the product so that people can have a feeling and a sense for it. It's not catalog shopping anymore. So a saddle library. So a saddle is a pretty tough thing to buy and walk away from the shop if you haven't actually tested it out. So you could, a shop could have 50, doesn't have to be just uh, body geometry saddles, but it could have 50 different saddles from X number of manufacturers and you can take that home with you, you try it out and you you bring it back. That's absolutely that right. A, sad, a saddle's a great point because so many people say no to a bike just because of how a saddle feels, right? And that's, that's one of those things. How many saddles would you have to buy through Amazon before you, before you got it right versus going to the store and having that experience? So that's one of those areas where I say, okay, so like saddle test, saddle demo. As a retailer, how do I bolster that experience for my customers? How do I bring them in and how do I create a way for them to experience that that's new and, and convenient and, um, and solution-oriented? So you'd be in favor of things, which I have seen in some bigger stores, which is like they'll equip a, a room with, with uh, curtains, they black it out, and then that's where you go and test the lights. You know, it doesn't have to be a huge space in a, in a bike shop, but this is, you, know, you open up, you go in there, and you test the five different lights to see which one you like. Others have got like weather chambers. So you want that particular uh, Gore-Tex, Simpatex, Pertex, whatever, X coat, you go into a weather chamber, you try it on, and they set, in effect, the shower, the perch thing. They set the shower on, and then you try that out. So this is where you think retail should go, the experiential action. You can't do this on the internet, basically. Exactly. That's exactly it. You can't get it done on the internet in terms of the product selection piece. And that's, that means I want to be able to touch, use, try on, uh, and try on in a semi-realistic or totally realistic environment to get a sense of my of the product investment I'm about to make. And that's a place where cycling is really interesting because people geek out about this sport and they geek out in a way that's just it's it's crazy that they want to know the the weight and the density and the makeup of every little product that they're looking at or I should say some people want that um, and to be able to look at that and say well how do I monetize that desire? Is that not, I see this problem here, that kind of customer, that kind of person that you've, you've described is often the showroomer, is the one that comes in, asks you all the weights, I'm looking, talking about a bike shop here, asks you all the weights, kicks the tires, but then goes and buys the, the, the product online. So should bike shops not be actually almost putting off those kind of showroomers, they almost want brand new people who are wet behind the ears and they can teach you from, from ground level because we are guilty of selling only to enthusiasts. 
Or instead of saying that the product sales my absolute victory, say the service sales my absolute victory. So if, if, you, if, you, if you fear showrooming because you're carrying a product that's just massively available through lots of different channels online, whatever, uh, then you charge for the service to come in and use the product and then you're less concerned about whether they purchase the product or not. You monetize where you control rather than when you, when you monetize, when you, tr when you say my entire livelihood is going to be based on the some other company delivering a product at, 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 at the time at a margin that's healthy for me. That's, that's, a risk, that's a risky step to take in any industry. Monetize the service that feeds you where you control the experience. So we're sitting in, in the Dusseldorf pop-up shop and we're actually sitting in the, in the retool uh, body geometry fitting room and, and bike fitting was one of those the kind of the, the, the panaceas that a lot of bike shops were told you've got to do bike fitting you've got to you've got to be personalizing the product for people that's what would get people into your stores do you still see that as something that is is vital that a bike shop should be doing or could there only be actually a, a few specialists in a city in a town and not every bike shop should be doing retail style bike fitting I tell you that I believe one of the easiest ways to alienate a customer offend them and never see them again is sell them the wrong size bike when when I've talked to riders who've had poor experiences at retail that tend that tends to be one of the common points that the retailer um, through an under through through an understandable like series of thought said no, 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 this one. This one that I have in stock is the one you need. It's the perfect one. And then the rider through some means learned that it might not have been the perfect one. So fitting, which I think really started to, to climb maybe a decade ago, mm -hmm. um, I think it's still absolutely crucial that it happens. And right now, yeah, there's, I, I, I question retailers who aren't looking into it because it is one of those services where um, there are different level skill sets, there are different capabilities, there are different technologies that are available, and they control the pricing of that. They control the delivery of that. They control how many they, they want to do in a week. That's one of those things I would still be massively investing in in terms of my, my retail business. I'm still getting a lot of uh, high gross margin revenue out of every fit that, that gets sold, I'd still go that route, yeah, for sure. And it's a good add-on, which you can give away for free if somebody's buying a $5,000 high ticket Well, there's bike. retailers out there who give it away for free with any purchase, mm. and there always will be. People who, give it, who, who look at it and say, the revenue's not there for me, I'd rather give that away and make sure I focus on the product sale. That's fine if they choose that path. Other, other retailers go, you know what, my focus is going to be selling the fit. Some say only fit, some say no fit. It's going to be all over the map, and there's probably not one solution that fits everybody. But if I'm opening a bike shop today, for sure I'm investing pretty heavy in making sure that I'm getting people on the right size bike. And if there's one thing they can say about my store is like, I bought the right product there. That's kind of essential. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that's that's got to be a given, you would think. Okay, so we are in Dusseldorf, as I mentioned, 
and describe why, why am I in Dusseldorf? Why, why have you brought me out here? What, what is happening in this particular space? Uh, uh, we're on Steinstrasse, which is an upmarket Cartier store is next door. This is a very posh area of retail in downtown Dusseldorf. So why are we here? About a year ago, we started to see a convergence of opportunities come at us. Um, first of all, Dusseldorf uh, is one of these cities inside Europe where e-cycling has grown, and it's grown massively. Um, Germany kind of leads Europe in terms of the amount of e-bikes that are getting sold here. Uh, so that, that, that's on one side, where we had this like huge investment and growth into, into e-bikes. Two, uh, this year the Tour de France starts in Dusseldorf. The first two stages are here. It's been a while since it's come since it started in Germany. Um, and right now Specialized is uh, working with a German team and that we have the world champion on that German team. Then we looked at where the route of that first, the first two stages were going and we, we saw that, hey, it's going on the Konigsallee, or that's, that's German for King's Alley. And this Konigsallee, the street in Dusseldorf, is the epicenter of of fashion and technology and if you are a brand you are on the Konig Soleil in some respect and we found this really great space and we thought you know what it's a perfect storm we got everything coming together we want to be we want to uh, launch our best e-bike platform out there, the Turbovato. We want to be relevant in a really powerful way during the tour, and we want to uh, establish and we want to <laughs> some background noise there. And we want to establish and build and present our brand in a, in a really creative way. And we thought, you know what, we got to do a pop-up store in Dusseldorf. If for anything, just a few months while we while we take take advantage of all those opportunities. So you've got like a short-term lease of three months, something like that? Uh, the lease on this space is uh, four months. So just so if there's any specialized dealers listening, this is not you experimenting for a store as such. This is, there was a definite reason to be in Dusseldorf and to do these two things. So the Vado launch and be around for the, the Tour de France. Right, so for anybody who's, who's listening, um, when you go into this space, it's a two-story space. We've got about 2,000 feet, uh, square feet or 200 square meters on each floor. And what this space does is right now, we are telling the story around the Turbo Vado and the Turbo Levo. So you walk into the store and we're asking all the big questions like, how long is your commute? Like the commuting in Europe and some cities can be hours getting to work when it could be minutes by bike and even faster by you know, using a turbo bottle. So we're telling the story and everything that surrounds that story within here. So when customers come in, they learn about the bike, they learn about the technology, they can ride the bike if they want. If they want to try on a jacket or a helmet to use while they're going on that ride, they can totally do that. We're trying to get people excited about cycling and excited about our brand and excited about the turbo. That's what we're doing right now. Now, for any of those retailers who are listening in, like I, I know they're probably thinking, holy, like, Specialized is going direct. They're coming after us. They're taking our business. Like they're, they're, you know, This is the first step they're going to make to owning everything, blah, blah, blah. That's not it. 
it's, we saw an amazing opportunity here. So it's PR, not it's, retail. It's first, we have some marketing goals and we want to make an investment here that we believe um, will actually elevate the independent retailers we're working with and give them an opportunity to capitalize on it. In fact, one of the things we did was uh, a few days ago before, I mean, we haven't even opened yet, <laughs> but a few days ago, um, while we're still painting and while we're still assembling fixtures, we invited about 30 of the, you know, our best partners, our best retailers from around the area to come in and let's have that talk. Like we, we heard their concerns, we heard their worries and like we addressed it and we just made sure everything was good. And we left with an understanding, like they know why we're here. They know how they can benefit off of it. They know how we can grow together. It's not a us versus them. It's an us with them. Yet by the same token, Apple, Sony, any number of brands, you've, they've got a shop and they very successfully sell in other retail outlets as well. So why should a bike shop be afraid anyway? If, even if, for, for the sake of argument, and you're not doing this, but even if you were doing this, why would they be afraid? If, if the, the, the trendy phrase here is omni-channel, if Specialized went to consumer, why, why would they be afraid if you, you did that? It's, um, they would be afraid if we didn't do it right. And so the right way to do that is to go to our retailers and say, hey, these are our values as a brand. And are you aligned with our values? And if they're aligned with our values, if they're totally aligned with us, then as a brand, we look at that and we would say, invest. Invest in that retailer who believes what we believe. Invest in them with uh, education, invest in them with pricing and margin, invest with them in terms of marketing support, really cater to that retailer. If there are other retailers who don't align with our values, well then that's a different question of whether or not we want to be there. Now if we're first invested in the right retailers and then they understand how we're going to do it, then it's about how would we make an investment like this that helps everyone. Um, I'll go outside of industry for a moment, but I look at Nike quite a bit and you know, uh, you go to these really big Nike stores. Now Nike's selling there, they're selling direct, they're, but at the same time they're selling online. Mm -hmm. But they're also selling in the Foot Locker and they're also selling in Carlton's Running World, like in the small corner shop. You know, everybody's selling Nike to some different degree. So when Nike makes an investment in one of these stores, um, for a large part, they're not profitable businesses. They're considered marketing, marketing investments that, that build an ecosystem around them. So for a lot of retailers, if the partnership's right, if everyone understands each other's values and that retailer has, a, has the opportunity to say, I'm in, I believe, or you know what, I'm opting out, then no, there's no reason to be afraid of any brand making that kind of move. Right? But there's a way to do it and, and my belief is that first we go to the retailers and we make the investment in the ones who are aligned with us. And then we make investments not with the goal of financial profitability um, in this one location, but with the goal of how do we raise all boats, not the tide that raises all boats, not the tsunami that washes them all away. So what we can hear in the background there is some pretty much power vacuuming, the store's getting ready for, for an official opening. 
this evening with the beers and the canaps and the, the Prosecco, etc. Uh, so this has been a fascinating conversation, uh, Donny, but we can't carry on this conversation forever a day because, as you can hear from the, the vacuuming, so there's much, things to be so done. So much work to do. However, in the meantime, as a wrap-up, how can people get your book, how can they get in touch with you, and how can they learn more about uh, what we've talked about today from, from you? Well, uh, to get a, get a hold of my book, all you'd have to do is Google Leading Out Retail or Google my name, Donnie Perry, D-O-N-N-Y-P-E-R-R-Y. It's going to pop up pretty quick towards the top. Um, if you want to get a hold of me, if you're a specialized retailer, you already know how. You just send me an email and call me up. Um, otherwise, you can connect with me on Twitter, at Donnie Perry, uh, or really any other social channel, at Donnie Perry. You'll find me there, too. Thanks to Donnie Perry, taking the time out there at the opening of the specialized pop-up store in Dusseldorf. I'll put a link to his social media profiles and his book on the-spokesmen.com. And that's where you'll find the rest of our shows. Uh, Click on through to our back catalogue. We've been doing this show for an amazing 11 years, which uh, (laughs) kind of a big back catalogue there. Uh, The regular guests, uh, the regular crew will be back on the show next week. Until then, thanks for listening. Thanks for subscribing. And thanks for telling your friends about the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. Get out there and ride. Thank you.